Well, loved ones, as we prepare to hear God's word and meditate together on the importance and significance of the bodily resurrection of Christ, I'll draw your attention to the bulletin here. You'll see that there are a variety of scripture passages that we will consider this morning, and this is sort of out of the norm. Typically, uh, we will take one large passage and then unpack its meaning and explain it this morning. We're going to look at a a variety of texts and see the implications, the results of the resurrection of Christ. And you can follow along with the brief outline that is there presented for you to fill that in as well as we go. So let us pray together before we begin. Let us pray. O God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago, and that is why we are here today. And also your spirit inspired the prophets and the apostles, the writers of the scriptures. And your spirit even now draws us to Christ and helps us understand and acknowledge him as Lord. And so we do ask that in this time, Lord, that you would send your spirit now to give us a deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. This we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in my college days, some of you might know this, but I was a barista at a time, so I made lattes and cappuccinos and such. And one early morning at about 4.30 a.m., I opened up the shop with my store manager, and while we were getting everything ready for the day in the quiet of the morning, we talked about Christianity, and she welcomed it. I presented to her, as we are getting things ready, my reasons for believing in the resurrection of Christ, that he truly rose bodily from the dead. I made strong arguments, I I felt, I thought, uh, as I laid them out to her, and in a way I felt proud afterwards. I presented a strong case. And then she turned and said to me, okay, but so what? What does it matter that Jesus rose again from the dead? Now, when she said that, I was a bit dumbfounded. I didn't know how to respond in the moment, and I felt silly. Here am I. I had staked my whole life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I cannot even give a clear and simple explanation as to why it matters. So clearly there was a hole in my thinking. I knew... I knew that it matters a lot, but I didn't have a clear and simple answer to give her in the moment. How would you answer that question? How would you respond when someone asks you about the resurrection of Christ and whether or not it matters? What's the significance? Well, that's what I want to do for us this morning. I want to fill in that hole in our understanding We believe that the resurrection of Christ from the dead has great implications, massive ramifications, and in fact, we will consider seven results of the resurrection of Christ, starting with full peace, full peace. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our resurrection. Now, almost all people know that Christians believe Jesus died to forgive us 
our sins, that he died to atone for all of our failures, to cleanse us from all our guilty stains and present us as innocent before God the Father. He took our guilt and he buried it. He cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. But here, Paul tells us something else, something more. He says that Jesus was raised from the dead to life in order to justify us before God. That means he rose in order to declare us as righteous before the Father, even though we are sinners. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was necessary for us to have full peace with God, because he says in the very next verse, in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we understand this? Well, before the death and resurrection of Jesus, full peace with God was not yet possible. What do I mean? Well, since God is perfectly good and righteous, you cannot be at peace with God unless you yourself are perfectly good and righteous. God cannot be at peace with evil, and we have evil within us, each and every one of us. You must be righteous if you want to have peace with God. So the question is, is anyone righteous? And Paul says earlier in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3 that none is righteous, not even one. No one does good, he says. No one can be justified by trying to be righteous, by trying to be obedient to the law of God. What we realize is that Jesus alone was perfectly good and righteous. His resurrection proved that fact. The Jewish people, like the Apostle Paul, who was once a Pharisee, he knew this. They believed, the Jewish people, that only a righteous person could rise again from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection was therefore God's amen on Jesus' whole life and ministry. It was the stamp of approval of Jesus' righteousness. But Paul realized that Jesus didn't just rise as the righteous one, but he also rose to make many righteous by faith in him. And this is the good news for us this morning, that Jesus, King Jesus, beat the enemy of death and our own sin, and that he now freely reigns to give sinners that gift of his own righteousness, his perfect righteousness. Now, how do you receive that gift? of Christ's perfect obedience to cover you and keep you before the Father? Well, Paul has said it. We are justified by faith alone. Faith, not works, trust in him, not obedience, his doing, and our receiving of what he has already done. That means that if you believe in Jesus, then God has already declared you righteous in him. Not by the virtue of your pathetic obedience, but by the virtue of his perfect obedience for you and for me. By faith in Jesus, your justification is not partial. It is full and final. Therefore, you have peace with God, which is a full peace. A full peace. So, loved ones, Jesus was raised for this purpose 
to give us peace with God, making us righteous so that we can dwell in his presence. Because of his resurrection, we have the promise of full peace with our creator. But that's not all. Not only peace, his resurrection also gives us pleasures forevermore. And that's our second point. You know, sometimes people think of Christianity as a kind of killjoy. Those people are dead wrong. They don't understand Christianity. They don't understand the God of the Bible. It is not. And the resurrection of Jesus proves it for us. Let me try and explain. So 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, his bodily resurrection, the Apostle Peter stood up in in front of a crowd of Jewish people who had gathered there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost. And Peter declared to them the reality of Jesus' resurrection that he was an eyewitness of, he and the rest of the apostles and the disciples there. And he quoted in his sermon Psalm 16, in order to prove it. He said that the author of that psalm, King David, had prophesied long before about the resurrection of Christ. In Psalm 16, David had said this, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to the underground, to death, to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. So from this, from Psalm 16, Peter argued that since David himself died, and his body had decomposed over time in the grave, then David must have been referring to someone else when he spoke those words. And in that sermon, Peter goes on to say this of David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So referring back to that promise that God gave to David, that one of your own descendants will rise and sit upon my throne. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. That was part of Peter's sermon that day, and for the Jews that were listening, this was a strong argument that proved that Jesus was the Messiah and the Lord. David spoke ahead of time about his resurrection. Now, that's not all that Psalm 16 says. Right after that verse about his resurrection, David goes on to say this. He says, he speaks of the pleasures forevermore that are at God's right hand. And David says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What does that mean for us? It means that the resurrection of Jesus as the Messiah is the path of life towards God's presence. It's the only way to get to God's presence. And God's presence is where fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore dwell and exist. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus is the path of life towards pleasures forevermore. How do we make sense of that? What does that mean, pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God? Well, we need to realize that by rising from the dead in his physical body, what was God doing? What was Jesus doing? He was reaffirming the goodness of God's creation. In the beginning, he made all things and declared it is very good. And he made it for us to enjoy to his glory. When Jesus rose from the dead, 
He reconsecrated as holy, as good, all of God's creation, which was meant for us to enjoy in the beginning. And so we who believe in Christ, we too will rise up bodily to enjoy again God's good creation to his glory in a creation restored and renewed, purified. We will delight in God's glory forevermore and in the goodness of what he has made for us. And that's why Peter, again, in his letter, in his second letter, he says this, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are longing for a hope that is real, that is tangible, where there will be pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. That is what Jesus' resurrection has unlocked for us, the renewal of all things bright and beautiful for us to enjoy to the glory of God. And how do we get to that new creation where there are pleasures forevermore? The only way is through the new way of life that Jesus opened up for us by rising from the dead through his resurrection. So you see that our risen Lord does not call us to monkishly abandon all pleasures. Rather, Jesus calls us to seek pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus secured for us lasting pleasures with God. He rose from the dead, not to kill joy, but to keep joy alive, pure joy with God. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have the promise of pleasures forevermore. But pleasure without purpose is vanity, is it not? It's hedonism. It's selfish. And so we also consider that the resurrection results in fulfilling purpose as well that gives shape to our pleasures. You know, many people in life in the world today are troubled by the questions of purpose and meaning. Questions like, what is my own purpose in life? Is there any meaning to life at all? And those are important questions for us all to consider and ask. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a strong affirmation to that question of purpose and meaning. Let me explain. In his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul argues in this way. He says, if the dead are not raised, ah, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So in other words, what he's saying is, if there is no resurrection then life actually is meaningless. If Jesus didn't rise, the only alternative is Nietzsche's nihilism, life with no purpose, no meaning. But Paul is saying Jesus is risen indeed. Paul himself saw Jesus resurrected with his own eyes, and so he concludes on the basis of Jesus' bodily resurrection at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, saying, Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, Paul claims here in that chapter, in his letter to the Corinthians, that the resurrection of Christ is the linchpin. All of Christianity stands or falls on this claim. Jesus rose from the dead. As one contemporary author today, Paul David Tripp, says, the resurrection is the reason why I get up in the morning. 
It gives meaning and purpose to our life because it is the historic proof, the historic proof that there is more reality beyond your birthday and your death day, that life is more than the bookends of your first breath and your last breath. However, if Jesus didn't rise bodily from death itself, then life has no purpose, and you might as well seize the day for all it's worth. Why? Because tomorrow you die, and that's it. Just live it up now, because death is coming, and there's nothing after it. But Jesus did rise, and now lives, and all who believe in him will also rise from the dead in the end. We will either stand or fall before him on that last day. In other words, what Paul is saying is that all of our life is headed towards a great unending existence. And it also means this, that all of our labor in love, our labor in the Lord in this life, will be harvested in glory. The resurrection of Christ, loved ones, promises us fulfilling purpose to live with through life. Our labor of love will be rewarded in the resurrection life. As Paul concludes, in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Now, what kind of harvest should we be working for? Well, the resurrection also results in this, fruitful productivity. Now, Americans, they prize, we prize the ideal of productivity, We long for that. We strive for it. But what are we encouraged to produce? Well, often it's bigger companies, better products, more stuff. When we think of productivity and success, our minds almost always gravitate towards what is commercial and consumeristic. But is that the kind of productivity that we were ultimately made for? Well, the resurrection of Jesus says no. The productivity that we should prize and pursue is the fruit of righteousness, that is, doing what is right, the fresh produce of the Holy Spirit, we could say. This is what we are ultimately made for, not to produce stuff, but to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We were made for the fruitful productivity of the Spirit to the glory of God, our Maker. The resurrection of Jesus has made that kind of productivity a reality for us. In John chapter 15, we find Jesus saying that he is the vine and that we are the branches. He's using an agricultural metaphor, an illustration there. And he says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Just think of that illustration for a moment. What good is a dead vine? Will it produce anything good? No, it will not. Loved ones, Jesus is not dead. He is a living vine. We are united to the living vine. Therefore, his resurrection life flows through the veins, so to speak, of every believer in him, like sap running from the vine, reaching the branches, and producing rich fruit. Because Jesus is risen and living, we now have fruitful productivity through him, through Jesus Christ, 
Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, it is my prayer that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we find that the resurrection of Jesus means that we, who once were dead and lifeless, fruitless branches, can now be grafted into him who is the living vine. Why? So that we might have fruitful productivity through him, that we might bear rich fruit of righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, having heard that, if you're a Christian, maybe that discourages you a bit, because as you look at your own life, you don't see the kind of fruit that you would like to see, that you wish was there. Well, there's more good news, because the resurrection of Jesus also gives us fighting power. And that's our next point, the fifth When Jesus died, we have to remember that he was subversively killing the power of sin and death itself. Death died in the death of Christ. When Jesus rose, he got up to give us freedom from sin and death. He lives now to infuse within us, his believers, the power of his resurrection life, his new principle of life. Why? So that we can face our enemies of sin and death with the firm confidence of victory that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can look at evil and death in the eye and say, you have no claim on me. Christ rose to set me free. The one who beat you is my plea. When Jesus comes back, every eye will see. Now, with that victory that we have in Christ, Does that mean that we will no longer sin or that we will no longer die in the end? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that our enemies will not have the final word over us. Jesus has the final word, and he will call our bodies back to life again on that last day. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8 where he says, If Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now what is Paul saying in that passage? He's saying that if you belong to Jesus, the very same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is now within you by the power and operation of the Holy Spirit. As the Puritan John Owen said, he loves life into us. He rose and lives to love his life into us more and more. And that means in the day-to-day fight against sin and death that we are not powerless. Christian, in your daily fight against your sins, You have Christ fighting power at work within you. If you belong to Jesus by faith, sin and death have no more claim over you than they do over Jesus because you belong to him. Remember that God is for you. And if he is for you and he is, then who can be against you? Christians, you are already free. You are destined for ultimate victory in Christ. Just as surely as Jesus beat sin and death, so too, in the end, you will beat sin and death by the virtue of his victory 
on the cross and over the tomb. Now until then, remember that because of Jesus' resurrection, we have Christ fighting power at work within us. But what are we fighting towards or for? And that leads us to our sixth point, forward progress. In 1951, a British evolutionary biologist by the name of Julian Huxley introduced the term transhumanism. Perhaps you've heard of that term. Transhumanism is the attempt to overcome human limitations and become exceedingly greater than what we currently are now. And according to transhumanism, they look forward to this point of singularity, and it is a hope of singularity, and it's a belief that at some point in the future, advanced computing, so technology and computers, will achieve a kind of omnipresence or an all-powerful self-awareness, and they believe, those who believe and affirm in transhumanism, that computers will someday become smart enough to modify, build, and improve all of life exponentially. Transhumanism, we must see, is a belief, really, in artificial intelligence, that AI will someday solve all of our problems that have so far stumped mankind's greatest minds. It is a secular and scientific creed, transhumanism. It's a leap of faith. But in it, we find something, this strong desire that humans have for forward progress, for improvement of our human nature. Everyone, everyone longs to break free from certain limitations, but especially the limit and finality of death itself. Well, friends, the resurrection of Jesus has already unlocked that forward progress that we so long for. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the transformation that will occur on the last day to our bodies after death. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. So in other words, when our mortal bodies die and go into the ground, sown, using a metaphor of agriculture again, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory, sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is the first man, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the head of a new humanity. So in this passage, God is promising us the glorious enhancement of our human nature. We will go from perishable, dishonorable, weak, to enhanced bodies that are imperishable, glorious, and powerful. We will go from decaying dust to indestructible glory by our union with Christ. And what is the basis of this glorious transformation? What promises the renovation of our human existence to become better than what we are today? It is the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that historic reality. Because of that, we will bear the image of the man of heaven, our resurrected king. But unlike transhumanism, think of this. Jesus did not merge his body with technology to become something less than human. He didn't 
rise again to become robotic or digital or virtual, which is in fact the goal of transhumanism. Rather, when Jesus rose from the dead, his own human nature was elevated to a higher degree of glory. So he transcended death without transcending his humanity. He transcended death without abolishing our humanity in the process. Instead, Jesus rose to elevate our human nature to its highest creaturely potential. According to the Bible, human nature doesn't get any better than what Jesus took out of that empty tomb. He is as good and as glorious as human nature gets. This, he is the forward progress that we were made for and that we long for, not the obliteration of our nature to become digital, no, but a glorification of our nature to be fully human through Christ. Jesus' resurrection, loved ones, has secured for us a glorious forward progress. Progress towards what? Our final point, final perfection of all things. The founding of this nation, the founding fathers of the United States of America, many of them embraced the ideas of the so-called enlightenment. Men like Benjamin Franklin believed that the perfection of himself in society was possible. Franklin thought that perfection was within his grasp if he only applied himself vigorously, and he did. Now, while striving for that kind of perfection is a good goal, it is impossible to arrive by our own strength and striving. It is impossible. But it is more than possible with God. The final perfection of humanity and all of creation is not just a possibility. It is a promise that is wrapped up in the resurrection of Christ. It is tied to that historic event. We and all of creation with us will be made perfect as he is perfect even now, if we believe in him. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says it in this way. He says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what Paul is saying here is that after the resurrection, now Jesus is appointed and seated as king over all things. He's subjecting all things to his renewing power. And that renewing power will also transform our own human nature to be like his glorious human nature on that last day. And in Romans 8, Paul says that all of creation will eventually be set free from its current bondage to corruption. So when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will be raised to inhabit a new creation in a state of final perfection. So think of it in this way. The, the historic resurrection of Jesus has started a kind of chain reaction that will result in the total glorification of his people and of all creation. He is called the firstborn of the dead because more shall be born from the dead again with him on that last day. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, loved ones, is our hope in the final perfection of all things, not on our own striving, 
not based on what we have done or can do, but based on what God has already done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that includes the perfection of our own bodies in Christ. So, loved ones, we've seen the seven results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he rose from the dead, God promises us full peace, pleasures forevermore, fulfilling purpose in life, fruitful productivity, forward progress, fighting power, and final perfection. If you believe in Jesus, those promises are already yours in him. It might not always feel like that. It might not feel like you have that power, that reality, but those blessings are yours because of his victory over sin and death 2,000 years ago. But if you're here today and you still deny that Jesus rose from the dead, if you do not yet entrust your heart to Jesus, then the opposite is true for you. Listen, how can you come, how can you come to a place of peace with the evil that is in the world? There is no other solution. You know that even evil dwells within you. How can you be at peace with that? Apart from his resurrection, tell me what solution is there for evil in this world. There is no solution. You cannot have peace. You cannot find peace. Also, you know that if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, then life has no inherent purpose or meaning. It must be meaningless if Jesus did not rise again from the dead. Plus, pursuing a productive life is pointless apart from the resurrection you know that at the end all human progress will eventually implode and result in a total extinction of all of life the ideal of perfection will never be achieved unless unless jesus truly rose again from the dead two thousand years ago you see apart from the resurrection of christ the curse of sin and death would have that final word If Jesus of Nazareth did not beat sin and death, well, that is the reality that we would be all left with. And it is bleak, it is dismal, it is scary and depressing if you look at it with honesty. It is. And sadly, that is the kind of hopelessness that so many in this world wake up to every morning. But here we are and we stand on good reason to believe that Jesus did, in fact, rise again from the dead Because Jesus is risen and will return, as I've said, as we've considered this morning, we have the assurance of full peace, of pleasures forevermore, fulfilling purpose, fruitful productivity, fighting power, forward progress, and final perfection. So to that question that my manager of the store asked me, what does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, now I know the answer. It matters a great deal. It matters more than any other truth claim that has come and risen in human history. It matters for all of eternity. The question for you today is, does it matter to you? What reason do you have for your doubts? Doubt your doubts. Maybe your doubts are not as legitimate as you think they are if you still reject Jesus. Doubt your doubts. Ask yourself, why it is that you still refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus, who has risen indeed. Change your thinking.
believe in Jesus in his death and resurrection and you too will be saved and all those blessings that we just considered will be yours free by faith alone in Jesus Christ glory be to God amen let us pray father God we thank you for this time on this resurrection Sunday to consider the ramifications and the results of your victory over sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We acknowledge that apart from that, we are left hopeless in a dismally bleak world without meaning or purpose. But with Christ risen from the dead, we have hope, we have great meaning and purpose in life, we have something glorious to look forward to. And Lord, we do ask that these truths that we find in your word, by your spirit, please impress them upon our hearts that we might live and walk in the reality of what you have done for sinners like us by conquering sin and death through the resurrection of Christ, our Lord and our King, who will and shall come again. Lord, we do ask that you would plant faith into our hearts, faith, hope, and love. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.